Yesterday, we spoke about kingship. Yes. And how kingship is a very different kind of relationship than other relationships. And it affords a very special opportunity for two beings who really fundamentally have no common ground to have a deeply um, devoted bond. And because, um, as it's rather obvious, that human beings who are mortal and God really don't have overlapping shared qualities of existence, it's specifically that mode of relating um, that affords a deep connection between God and the Jewish people. And at the end of the class, we spoke about how Hashem's desire to be king um, is withdrawn on Rosh Hashanah. And the idea of Rosh Hashanah is we're trying to um, bring that desire, bring that passion that Hashem has in being our king back to renew that relationship. And so long as that desire isn't there, the entire enterprise of having a relationship with God through Judaism um, ceases to have any real meaning. And so from the Hasidic perspective where life is all about relating to Hashem um, and, the, and the mode through which that happens is the Torah and the mitzvahs, um, the scariest time of year would be Rosh Hashanah, specifically from the time Rosh Hashanah begins until the sounding of the show for the next day. What we're going to talk about today is this idea of Hashem's desire to be king being withdrawn, why it's withdrawn, um, bringing it back. Um, And again, there's a lot that we could talk about but for the purposes of uh, actually getting through the other parts of Tishrei, we're going to limit ourselves to one class on this. Now, we're going to start with, with um, drawing a distinction between two types of um, desire or will. Uh, the, the wording in Hebrew, the word in Hebrew is ratzon, um, and we could debate what's the most appropriate translation of the word, but somewhere in the realm of desire or will. And there are basically two, there's two kinds. There's a kind of desire or a will that seeks fulfillment. In other words, you can speak, I desire something, and then the question is, has my desire been fulfilled? Or I have a will for something, and there's a question, has my will been fulfilled? Okay. And then there's a kind of a desire or a will where the notion of fulfillment isn't relevant. The example that Hasidus uses is, say, the connection between a parent and a child. The, the significance of the child in the life of the parent um, is described as a kind of a will or a desire that the parent has for the child, but there's no notion of fulfillment. It's not that the parent, on this over time, it's not that the parent wants something from the child or wants the child to achieve something or even wants to be next to the child. It's just this feeling that the energy of their being is kind of flowing out of them and being directed towards their child. There's this, there's this kind of bond between them. And it's described like a sense, of, a sense of desire, a sense of attachment, 
But there's nothing that needs to happen. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled. There's no, there's no sense of wanting. And then there are other types of desires. So say the desire for knowledge, right? Where you know, if you have the knowledge, then, you're not, then the desire is fulfilled. And if you don't have it, then you're wanting, you're lacking. Does this distinction make sense? Does anyone have questions on this? Because I want to build on it, but if it's not clear, then I have to make sure that it's clear. Can you just repeat it? So there's a type of a desire or a will where there's no real notion of fulfilling. There's no that I'm, I, I want something and then I get the thing that I want. It's just a sense of deep connection and attachment. Okay. So like, I'll even take a, the, the notion of parent. The desire that a parent has for the child is different than the desire that the parent has that the child grow up to be a healthy, functional, moral person, right? That can be fulfilled or God forbid not fulfilled, right? So, and, and, and so those are two very different desires, right? The desire to see somebody is different than, than, than that because if you see them, then that's fulfilled and if they're away from you, you can't see them and you yearn for them. Right? But then there's the sense of, 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 I feel this that same kind of energy, that same kind of of, of my my soul is drawn after, drawn after them and connected. But there is no there, there's nothing I really need. There's nothing. It's just the desire is all there is. Yeah. No. No, that's that. No, no. This type of desire doesn't. No, this is. That would be a different thing. That would be desire for the child to exist, and that's different. Um, and that's why. That's why. God forbid, if someone does lose a child, they still feel a sense of connection and attachment to that person. And often. Um, they have an additional desires. They wish they could see them again. They wish they would come back into this world. But that's, those are two different desires. And this kind of desire where we don't have, where a person doesn't, doesn't, there's nothing to be fulfilled. It's much deeper and it often gets crowded out by the desires of fulfillment. So even in the case of a parent, most of the desires the parent will notice in themselves without doing a lot of deep introspection, there's a desire for the health of the child, desire for the child to be moral, a desire to spend time with the child. Those are things that can be fulfilled. But underneath all of that is something else, which is just a sense that there's an outpouring of, of, of and the, the, there's not good words for this. <laughs> there's an outpouring of, 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 the, of the energy of your living, of, of, your, of your thriving is just directed at this other person. There aren't actually. And that's why this is used because, and this is what I was going to get to. The only time you can have this desire is when you have an intrinsic bond that's built in from the very beginning. Anything that is in some sense other than yourself or external to yourself, the desire always has this quality of is it being fulfilled or is it not being fulfilled? So the reason why this is true between the parent and the child is because it is, it's a manifestation of the fact that the the child is in some sense just an extension of the parent. And there really isn't another example of this. Okay. Um, it, it plays out also in siblings because if they're both extensions of the parents, then, then in some sense they have that bond as well. But that's about it. Parents to children, siblings, and children back to parents. No, absolutely not. Because it, 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 it comes from the fact that you literally... The, 
you live on through them. That, that's what, that's what, and that doesn't happen in, in a very um, absolute sense. Anything that you have to, anything that, anything that you feel very strongly about um, is usually something that you've come to an awareness of and you see it resonates with you and you value and you want in your life. And therefore, there's a question of that, is that desire being fulfilled or not? Okay. Um, this is a subtle distinction. Now, the reason I'm starting with this is, is very important because we're going to talk about how Hashem's desire to be our king goes, goes away. Now, his being king is the basic model of his relationship with us. But that means what's left. What's left of our connection with Hashem if his desire to be king goes away? What kind of desire is it? The first or the second? It's the second. But the desire goes away, then what's left? No. That he created us? Like... That's not a relationship, which we'll talk about soon. Yeah. The bond is still there? There's nothing. There's nothing. If the desire goes away completely, which is what happens on Rosh Hashanah, there's nothing. Yeah, she said he's a father. Ah, right. That's why I want to bring this up, is that you always have to keep in back of mind, right, that there's two, there's, there's two things that are both true. Hashem is the father of the Jewish people, Hashem is also the king. On Rosh Hashanah, what goes away? Kingship. Well, kingship. But fathership, the father never goes away. And this is... The, this is the whole basis of Rosh Hashanah is the king. Right. But he... Right. So his desire for us, as it, his desire for us to relate to us as he's the king and we're the subject what we spoke about yesterday, that goes away. And everything that follows from that, therefore, disappears. Which we'll talk about in a minute what that means. But this other aspect of Hashem's desire for us, which is He desires us like a father desires the child, that's not affected at all by Rosh Hashanah. Okay? And what that means is that there's kind of two simultaneous elements of Rosh Hashanah. There's a tremendous amount of dread because if we value this relationship of kingship, which we spoke about yesterday, it's, it's, it's in jeopardy. It's, it, it doesn't exist and, we, and, it, and, it, and it, there's no automatic given that it's going to come back. Okay? Um, when we value something and that thing is, is taken from us, it's, it's scary. And we don't... But on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of confidence because there's this other relationship that exists no matter what, which is like the father and child. Okay? And what that means is and this is why I started by the two kinds of things. The relationship, the connection exists as the, on the level that Hashem is our Father. He doesn't want anything from us. There's nothing we can do to fulfill that. In fact, and this is what, even the fact that we exist physically is not really the point. It has to do with the core of our being, our very soul. So there's this very deep, deep, deep connection. It doesn't, and I'm not going to talk about it to this class, but you could ask me questions and answers, and I'll elaborate on it, okay? If I do that, then I won't have time to cover this. Um, and it really has nothing to do with us as people. So on the one hand, there's a part of us which has this connection to Hashem that's no matter what, and Hashem isn't, and, there, and there's nothing we can do to kind of fulfill any desire. It's just we are important to Him, but that part of us that is just important to Him 
is not a tangible part of our human lives. So the thing that, the, the thing that is in jeopardy, the thing that is, 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 is being held up to question, to examination of whether Hashem should desire it anymore, is his relationship to us in this world as people. Why is being a child not relevant to our human lives? Because the sense in which we're Hashem's child has to do with our soul, and our soul is not a human being. I, I spoke of this a little yesterday, the soul has to figure out a way of entering the human. The human being is, the human being is just like the body is, is a physical thing, and then the soul enters that. So really the divine soul, even, even human psyche, even the human experience, what it is to be a human being is like a, is called the body. Very often, actually, in Hasidic texts, when it talks about the body, it doesn't mean the physical flesh. It means the entire human being. It's like the body of the soul. Our psychology, our desires, everything about us as people, our intellect, our reasoning, is not really intrinsic to the soul. And so if we were to strip all that away and just say, oh, my soul is like Hashem's child, and Hashem, that's fine, but, then that, but that's not me. That's not me, the human being. Um, we say every day in our morning blessings that Hashem put the soul into me, right? There's me, the person who has deep down a soul. And so if all we have is that connection, it's very, very absolute. Um, there, it's, it's something that cannot be strengthened, something that cannot be weakened. It can be felt more or less, but it's also transcendent and remote. It's not, it's not part of our lived day-to-day life as a human being. And so it, if I say... Does Hashem still care about me in Rosh Hashanah before the kingship is renewed? The answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense he cares about me because I have this divine soul and no as a human being. And that's what's, that's what's, as you end up with these two kinds of conflicting emotions, dread, um, it's called Yod Nirayim, days of dread, really, that's the best translation for it. And at the same time, it's also supposed to be, there's a tremendous amount of, confidence and joy and optimism because we have this other relationship that, that's still there and always there. So I don't want to spend more time on this. I just want that to be in place so that when we go through and we talk about there is which there is a relationship and the back and forth of Hashem having a desire or not, realize that there's this other side of the equation which is always going to be there regardless. Okay. But that other side of the relationship doesn't really have anything to do with whether we do mitzvahs, whether we serve God. Okay. So now, the other side being the, the father. father, right? But it right. does because our our soul, although it's put into us, it is us. We wouldn't have a personality or a life or emotions or anything without the soul. No, actually, the the the, the way it's explained in Kabbalah is that those things are actually not the soul. Those are garments of the soul. Those are things that the soul adopts. Uh, it, 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 it's it, this soul actually is a whole process of the soul learning how to be act as a human being and enter a human life. But you is really, it my name and expression of my soul? No. Actually, in the actually. morning blessings, you don't say thank you, God, for turning my soul. You say thank you for turning the soul which you've given me. Yeah. The, the name actually is something that the soul needs to connect to the body. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very important, but the name has to do with the soul's connection with the body. There's no thing as the this, the name is, the name, the way it's explained in Kabbalah is the name is, is, is the soul's ability to establish a relationship with a human existence. So as a human being, my whole relationship with my soul is via my name. But if I were to adopt the perspective of the soul itself. You wouldn't have a name. Yeah. It's beyond a name. Similar way that God actually says he's beyond a name. 
Um, that's actually why there's a Jewish custom that if, God forbid, a person is ill, um, we change their name, we add names, right? So right, you're not changing the essence of the soul, but you're, you're trying to change the mode by which the soul relates to the whole person. So, um, okay. Um, but if we're constantly doing good deeds, how could God lose his desire to give you? So that's what if we're going to talk about. Right What's that? So we have to understand, why does God lose the desire to be king? Now, and the reason, the reason for this very simply is because for God to be king is somewhat unnatural, if you can use that word with reference to God. So remember yesterday when we spoke about a king, and a king has this, this, this kind of sense that there's, there's two levels. There's the level the king is on, there's the level the people is on. Okay. The truth of the matter is that there aren't any, there's no such thing as two levels for God. There's no two, two, two anything for God. God is absolute in a way that we cannot fathom. One of us is we cannot fathom this. But the very notion of God being on one level and something being on another level, the notion that there's God and beyond God or God and outside of God or even divisions within God is not really correct. It's not really true. The Jewish belief of the, of, of, the, of the unity of God is such that God's existence is absolute and precludes anything else. So there, for God, the kind of the natural state of God is there's no other. There's just him. Right. There's the verse, there's nothing other. Than. So now what that ends up, what that means is, and this, this is something we can't really, we, we, we can try and come up with analogies, but I think it's easier to understand how it's different. Every human being instinctively has a sense of a duality of there's myself and there's what's beyond me. Mm-hmm. And the, in the space of beyond me, there are other people, there are objects. And because there's beyond me, and I'm aware of them, the beyond me is represented within myself. Hence, I have a, a, a model of the world. I have values. I have emotions. In other words, the whole thing we call personality ends up becoming that I have a sense of the other. I have a sense of how I'm going to relate to the other. And, and then we have all sorts of relationships, shallow relationships, deep relationships, complex relationships, relationships of intimacy, relationships of distance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for God, there, there is no other. If there is no other, there is no, there's no anything. There's just his pure being. And so there's a sense in which for God to desire to be king would mean that God would have to desire to totally redefine himself, to totally change the kind of being he is. Okay? He, in other words, he would have to become something that he's not, a being that exists with an end, with a boundary, and then there's space for another, a real other who's really separate, who's so separate that the only way they can connect is through this model of kingship. And... What, what, so to give you an example of what this is like, not, not so much what God is like, but the idea of having a desire, think about, think about um, when a person enters a new stage in life and their entire way that they experienced their life, the entire way they knew themselves is not going to work anymore. Okay, so for instance, to give you a simple example, a person goes to grade school, right? They go to high school. And their life is very much structured through the kind of um, 
assembly line educational system, right? There's a grade, right? What do you do after fourth grade? You go to fifth grade, right? What do you do after fifth grade? Sixth grade, grade, right? Some people, due to either culture, family pressure, whatever, this continues into college. After you graduate high school, you obviously go to college and then you're four years of college, right? But at some point, what happens? Some people, it's at the end of high school, at the end of college, what happens? You're done. And then there's this realization, like there is no like assembly line that tells you what you do next year. And you have to like now start narrating your life. And like you have to like become that kind of person who can do that. And that's a shift, right? It's a whole shift in how you see yourself relative to, to everything. That makes sense? Okay. How many times in your life do you do that? Just like once? What about getting married? Don't you do it every day? I would say you probably don't do it every day because if you did, you'd probably have like a crisis if you did it every day. Most days we wake up and we revert back to like, that we have like a story of like, but every so often, Every so often, sometimes due to external things, like the example I gave you of you know, graduating or the example of um, getting married. But sometimes, what? Having a child, right? And sometimes not through any external things, which we're going to talk about in a minute. We, we have this sense that the, the story of who I am and how I live my life and what it's about, like that story is can be rewritten. It doesn't, it's not automatic. Okay. A good example of this when a person decides to, when a person makes a transition from living a secular life to a religious life. And there's something very freeing and very scary and um, exhilarating and, and of realizing that if my desire to embrace the story of my life as it's been up until now goes away, I'm actually free to like, have a different story and to see myself differently, to look at my life differently, to look at the world differently, to care about things in a different manner. And there's a lot of personal autonomy in that. And because it ultimately comes down to a choice, it's something that from time to time, again, either prompted from external circumstances or internally, which I'll get to in a second, this gets re-examined. And the reason is because it's not a given. It's not automatic. And there's always a sense in the person deep down, I could live a different life. I could want different things. I could have a different value system. What's the proof people do? And so if you're in touch with that deeper part of yourself, you have a sense that as much as I have this passion, this enthusiasm for, for my relationships, for my values, for my lifestyle, for whatever it is, there's a sense in which that's, that's making a choice. And there are other choices I could make. And so in some sense, no life is ever big enough to contain the, 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 the full potential of what I could live. And so there's a need for a person to um, refresh and rejuvenate and re-engage in whatever life they're going to live. Um, and this is, again, if you did this every day, what would happen? You'd have like an existential crisis. You couldn't live this way. But it happens. Midlife crisis is an example of this. Um, Just a fresh start. Right. Now, it, but it means, and what, but it means when you're in that moment when, when the, 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 the investment and the passion and the, the desire for this life that you've been living 
is withdrawn and you haven't yet necessarily found the new way, found the way you want, the new way to approach things or to go back that from a, from a, from a, from a deeper place, from a, from, a, from a different angle, there's a sense that everything is kind of like in, in, in kind of like a holding pattern, like the airplanes are circling around waiting to land. So you kind of go through your life, but you're not really there in your life. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna like do something crazy and destroy your life. Hopefully, if you have some maturity, because like, but but it's everything's on hold. You're not living. You're not living the life you were living. You're not living a new life. And it's just kind of going through things, and that's again not a perfect analogy. But because for Hashem to be king is not a, it's not an automatic thing. The very notion that that there's him in the transcendent sense, there's us in that mortal sense, and there's these two levels of reality. That's artificial. That's something that God has to choose. It's not innate for him. And if it's not innate for him, if he's going to be honest with himself, it's not it. Why should, why should he relate to himself that way? Why should he see himself that way? Why should he exist as if there's beings outside of him who can serve him? And if he's re-examining that and, and, and considering that and trying to see if he wants to, to he still wants that and if he wants it in the same way, in the, inter- in the interim, it's not like the world ceases to exist. It's not like everything falls apart, but he's not really fully invested. He's not really there. Um, the, the, the way the way uses analogy um, is that if you were doing something for a friend and you no longer feel the love for that friend, but you still, like, for whatever, you're, just, you're still doing the actions. So you're, at, you're still, you're doing the actions, but you're not there. You're not... And, and someone who's watching you can tell that like, you're somewhere else. And in that sense, we say Hashem withdraws from the world. Not he disappears. Not he stops creating the world. But this whole notion of his God and there's a world and there's service of him, that doesn't speak to him because there's no, there's no inherent reason why it needs to speak to him. Now, this also creates a very positive opportunity, which is, as you put it, a fresh start. Because when he does decide that this is something that he wants, right, it's a new beginning. That's why we call it Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. It's, it's a new beginning. So it's not, it's not the case that Rosh Hashanah is a time where God is saying, like in a kind of like manipulative way, oh, well, I don't know if I still want this anymore. Let me figure it out. It's God is saying, this is something I was really into, but it's not a given. There's a deeper truth to me. And now I have to go back to myself and decide, is this really the life I, this, the life I want to live, the way I want to be, or not? And people make these kinds of decisions. And that's, we, when we, that happens, when a person does that, we look at that. Again, if you do it every day, you're going to go crazy. But if we do it from time to time in our life, that's a sign of like being a mature person, a sign of having a sense of the depth of what it is that we're, we're, we're much more than any limited life we live. Well, that same thing is what's playing out in Rosh Hashanah. Now, I'll, one thing before, I'll take questions. I saw there were a few questions. What if you're on the other side of that? In other words, let's use the example. It's, 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 well, uh, I think it's an understandable example, but it's not the same thing. Let's talk about someone who, who's going through a midlife crisis and they're not sure they want to stay married. That happens to people. Not because they're being mature, but really like, they're not, they, they're not who they were when they were younger. It doesn't resonate with them anymore. 
there's a sense that there's so much more to them and they're not sure, is this, is this life really for me? And they have to work through that, right? But if you're their spouse, <laughs> it's like serious consequences, right? Because if they make one decision, like your whole life is going to get overturned, whether you like it or not. Well, that's what it's like to be a Jew in touch with what is going on with God on Rosh Hashanah. Okay? And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring Hashem's desire back into this relationship, but in his key, not in exactly the same way it was before, a fresh start. How he's going to be king, but it's a different, it's going to have a different flavor. Okay? And that's why Rosh Hashanah is a time where we also, for ourselves, want to go back to that place. What does it mean to me that I want to serve God? Because it's not what it, mean, what it meant to me last year and two years ago is not what it's going to mean to me this year. And I have to go back into myself. So we're both kind of doing this and hopefully it's coordinating well and we end up in the right place. Okay. Does this make, does this make some kind of sense? Um, okay, now questions. Yes. So first of all, why Rosh As opposed to like today or yesterday? No, no because like, So there, so the thing is like this, you are correct in, and you're correct in two ways. I'll start with the way that's a little easier to explain and then I'll do the harder one. When we talk about all the little things, this dynamic that I spoke about is true. I'll go back to the example of marriage, right? If you're, when you're married, Life is full of all sorts of things of like how much you're into it, how much you're not into it, things that draw you in, things that make you feel like I don't really want really to be. But they don't necessarily rise to the level like you're genuinely considering entering the marriage. So there's layers of engagement. Rosh Hashanah is talking about like the core issue altogether. But there is a sense where how much Hashem is invested in our relationship, how much we're invested is a back and forth dynamic every day. And that's, there's a notion of rejuvenating every day, rejuvenating at every moment. But there's always like a kind of a bedrock layer to fall back onto, that he is our king, we're his subjects. But to question that core ground, that's once a year. Right. And then why is it? Okay, so that's the easier part to explain. I understand why, like, even though, like, it could still really bother him Okay, no, no. So the thing is like this. This is harder to explain and I'm going to limit the amount of time I devote to it, okay? Um, if you want, again, so I'm going to talk more time on questions and answers. One of the major issues is that as human beings, we are limited and we cannot engage in everything simultaneously. And so God's solution to this problem is what he calls time. And what time affords is that things that cannot coexist for us, we can do by doing them different times. For instance, okay, very, very simple. Um, 
I cannot simultaneously enjoy spending time um, with my son and um, explaining to him why the choices that he's making are wrong. I just emotionally can't do those things at the same time. And so it's good that there's a time, of, you, know, if the, you know, there's hours and I can spend time and just go out with ice cream and then there's time when, you know, we can have a conversation about like why those choices are wrong and it's uncomfortable, it's important, right? So God doesn't really have this issue though, which means for God on some sense, it's always Shabbos and it's always Pesach and it's always Rosh Hashanah and it's always Sukkot and it's always Tuesday and it's always Monday and it's always tomorrow and it's always yesterday. <laughs> but we can't, we can't interact with God if that's how he's going to be. So what does God do? He makes what's called a shana. A shana is a cycle. And he cycles through every aspect of the ways in which he relates to us. And then it circles back again. And it's like a spiral staircase. So if you look at it one way, you're going up. But if you look at the other way, you're just keeping hitting the same points again. So on some level, the truth is that it's always Rosh Hashanah for God. But he keeps that to himself. And only expects us to engage him on that level at the beginning of every cycle. It's always Yom Kippur, but he only expects us to do that once a year. It's always Shabbos, but he's like, we'll do that in a seven-day cycle. I get it. That's a harder thing to wrap our minds around, but, but that's the answer. Even though whatever, it just, which means if everything is for everything, I mean, it doesn't have emotions, but then, like, if everything is for everything, I mean, it doesn't have emotions, but then, like, when I'm praying to him and it's, it's a time for, let's say, it's a time where he's compassionate. He's also angry from the time that there's anger. Do you know? Do you? Uh, uh, do you know what we say right before we start the formal prayers, the Shmonaster? Oh yeah, that. We say a verse. What's that verse? Hashem sfasai tiftach. Hashem open my lips. There's many reasons for it. One reason is that if we if we realize we've sinned, we don't feel worthy of praying to God. There's different reasons. Yeah. One reason is because if you actually contemplate this point you start to realize that like you can't pray. Cause like when I talk to you, right? We first like set a, like we enter a shared mental space. Like right now you're asking questions. I'm trying to answer it, right? Or if you have a friend and they're really frustrated by something, right? Now is not the time to ask them for a favor that would inconvenience them, right? You, we, we first kind of established that we're in the same headspace, and then we, but if God is, if God is, in all spaces at once in a way that, they, that they're all mutually coherent with each other in a way that I can't fathom, I can't bring myself into a space where I feel comfortable opening my mouth in front of him. Right. So what do I need to do first? Right, okay. So there's a, there's a sense in which that, the, that when a person really grasps they're about to talk to God, the reaction is to fall silent. Not like you don't open, like, like you cannot speak. Right. Okay, that would be a consequence of, of taking this very seriously. Okay, but back to Rosh Hashanah. So Hashem, therefore, does things in a way where he shares different, what we'd call facets of this in a way that we can handle them. And so the beginning of the cycle is, is he going to be interested in this? And so we're going to talk about it as if Hashem is flowing through time because that's the only way we can really relate to it. But keep in mind, yeah, it's, 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 it's different. Yes? I feel like this is kind of like a dumb question, but I just can't put the answer into words. Why is it important that Hashem is our king or wants to be our king. It's only important if, we had, if we're coming from a perspective that a deep connection to Hashem is something that we want and we value and we want it to play out in our mortal lives. If those two, which is why I said that this is a Hasidic approach. Like it, 
If I was like, you know, I don't really care if God, like, I have a deep connection to God, right? Or I don't care that my deep connection to God play out in the life that I live, the day-to-day human experiences. Well, then none of this is really, would be very motivating or relevant to you, right? And maybe the fact that God decides whether we live or die or rich or poor is what really motivates you in Rosh Hashanah, which is also part of Judaism, but that's not the Hasidic emphasis. And that's important to realize that every, every explanation of something presupposes a certain drive, a certain value that someone has, and, you know, and, the, and as I said in the, the beginning part of these classes that because we're talking about Chassidus, Chassidus always presupposes that, that there's a deep desire in every Jew that their whole life should be about connecting to Hashem in the most absolute way. And then it goes and explains what's Judaism, what's Torah, what's mitzvahs, what's this, what's that, from that perspective. Which means that sometimes Hasidic ideas don't resonate with us. Like sometimes when we're really in, in cranky and miserable and we're just like, we just, you know, want to sit on the couch and eat ice cream. Like, nothing Hasidus says really speaks to us because we're in a very, very, like, shallow animalistic state. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. Why um, Rosh Hashanah is when Rosh Hashanah is and Nisan is the beginning of the calendar? So why wouldn't that be the new year and why, why we have, like, two... Okay, new- so we have, actually, in Judaism, many new years. Mm. Um, we have four as a general rule. Um, Hasidim always adding things, so Hasidim has, has their own new year also. Um, a, a simple way of understanding this is think about it like this, right? There's the, there's the fiscal year, right? Mm-hmm. There's the academic year, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, there's also the political year, right? So, for instance, mm-hmm. when, when the new politicians take office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's reasons for not doing everything all at the same time, practical reasons. Spiritually, um, because it's a Hasidic class, the reason why the months start at camp from Nisan and the, and the new year of Rosh Hashanah starts from the month of Tishrei is because they're actually reflecting different aspects of God's relationship with us. Um, what we're, this notion of God being king, of us serving God, that really begins with the creation of Adam. And that's understood to be on Rosh Hashanah. Adam was created on Rosh Hashanah. The 25th day of the month of El is when God creates the world. Adam's created on the sixth day of creation, which ends up being the first day of the month of Tishra, which is when we have Rosh Hashanah. The idea that God has a deep vested interest in the Jewish people and wants to bring them to a kind of miraculous and transcendent um, bond with him, which is the whole story of the Exodus, is a very different idea. And um, the whole idea of counting the months is part of that idea. The, the idea of the months, the, the mitzvah of them counting the months was actually the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people as a people. And so you're actually talking about very different, very different relationships, different ideas. And so they have different cycles. Okay? There's a reason why it makes sense that the academic year starts when it does, at least it used to, because people had to work in the fields with it for their parents. And so you couldn't expect the parents to send their kids to school during harvest season, mm. right? So it made sense to start after harvest season until harvest season, hence we have summer vacation, right? Um, there's reasons why, why, why things are, so the same thing spiritually. So you actually have many kind of cycles overlapping. Mm. But this notion of God desires our service and that justifies having this thing called the world in which we are there and we're going to serve him and he's going to value that and should go that really begins with the creation of Adam. And so the time okay. for God to renew that in his relationship, to expose that vulnerability of his, does he desire, does he not, would be on that anniversary of that event. Got it, thank okay. you. I have two questions. Okay, yeah. and then I want to keep going because there's more uh, things I have to cover. Okay. First of all, what would happen if God decides not to 
Okay, I was going to talk about those things. Okay, what would happen is that God would eventually stop creating the world. And I'll explain to you. Well, yeah, but our souls, which things to understand is the soul is not really part of the world. Like there's, there's, oh, right. In other words, God doesn't see the soul as other. Right, that's the weird paradox of, of, of a parent and a child. It, it's someone else, but it isn't someone else. It's me beyond me. Or it, it, it's a whole different dynamic. Does that really have parents feel? It's there. Usually what parents feel is stressed. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's moments of what we call nachas, which is that, that it touches you in this deep way in your soul, right? And then sometimes there's very much concern. But if you can strip away what's underneath all of that and what's driving all of that is this, yes. Um, you know. Also, you feel like you're godlike in an undeserved way <laughs> when you start to realize that your children see you as a godlike fi- figure. Um, f- first, they embrace that and then they like, don't embrace it, but it's always there. And you feel very like, wait a minute, I'm just a guy. I'm just a no, girl. I don't like that. I'm still figuring out life. Why is this person th- relating to me as if like I can, I set the tone of reality. <laughs> but yeah, so, but you do in a very general way. And, and even when you, you know, and even when, 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 you know, your, your, your children get older. I mean, my oldest is, is only 14. But you start thinking back to your parents. Like even now as an adult, like I still look on some level, you still look at your parents as like someone you, 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 wish you could or do f- able to fall back on in some way. You're like, wait a minute, I'm that person to these people. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's very scary. But I also, um, sorry, yeah. I have a child that's 30. She's, um, I also think you, Hashem gives you children because you learn so much from them. They mirror back to you yes. things within yourself that you maybe struggle with within your own parents. So it becomes a very multidimensional mirror, kaleidoscope, that God uses to develop you yeah. in such a powerful yes. way. You, you start to, you, your parent, having children makes you realize that you want to, who you want to be because your, your children start living the life you're actually living. <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, no, 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 that's not the life. That's not, right, the weirdest. Wait, you know, you know, like, this is a little simple thing, but it's like, you notice that something is off when your child starts making brachas and mumbles them. Uh. And you realize that they pick that up from you, and you're like, I was assuming a person doesn't thinks that's wrong, but you don't realize like how like dismissive making a bracha is until you see it in your own children. Like they, they're living out my life. <laughs> like I want. It's a small thing, but sometimes it's big things, and like you know, you know, you waste time, and you don't realize that you're wasting time. But then you see your kids picking it up from you, and you're like. Oh. My gosh, that's what my life actually looks like. Um, but yeah. Um, so so here's so so imagine imagine that you are going to uh, you know make a wedding, and so you hire a, a band and a hall and a caterer and all these things, right? And then and then and then as the wedding day approaches, right the. Uh, the, the chas and the kal, the bride and the groom, they start having a bit of a conflict. And it's not clear whether they're actually going to get married. <laughs> okay, so imagine that. Now, imagine you're the caterer. You're like, well, I mean, this is, this is not great because, like, I mean, I have a deposit, but, like, I might, 
only get the deposit. I might not get like all the money that I was, I was counting on, right? Because if they decide to call it off, they're not going to pay for the hall. They're not going to pay for the catering. They're not going to pay for the band, right? So you're like hanging in limbo. <laughs> and if God forbid they decide to call it off, you can get whatever the deposit check they gave you and that's it. So in a sense, that's kind of the state of the world. Hashem is like, I'm not sure I want to be king. If I'm not want to be king, there's no real need to have a world. And so the world's still there. But if he were to then actually conclusively decide no, what would happen? There wouldn't be a world. There would be just God and that would be the end of it. Now, this is why the angels get scared, by the way, in Rosh Hashanah. Because um, they realize that they're just hired help. And if God doesn't need, if God isn't a king, he doesn't need ministers. And like, they're out of an existence, not just out of a job. Um, so they get quite nervous. Um, now, the, the other question, every year he ends up deciding he wants to be king again anyway, so what's the, big, what's the big deal? So this is where I think it's important to differentiate between... Actually, I'm going I'm to start. It was very controversial when Hasidus started to be taught to younger people. It used to be that, as a general rule, Hasidus, the ideas of Hasidus were only taught to... Um, people who kind of reached a certain level of maturity in life. Um, the idea that like you would teach Hasidus to teenagers in, in a yeshiva or something like that was an innovation. It's a, now it's, say, uh, 120 years old. So it's, and, and, when it ha- and when it started, it was, it was controversial. And the reason is because there are a lot of things, and arguably most anything in Hasidus, you can't appreciate when you're immature. And when you look at it in a very kind of uh, technical way, Oh, if God doesn't want to be king, then there's no reason for a world, and we have to convince him to be king. And if we doesn't, we're able to do a good job, then the world won't exist. And like, and you start thinking, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because every year he does it, and like, you know, in fact, there's even a, there's even explains that God makes a covenant with us, guaranteeing that he's eventually going to want to be king anyway. So then, what's the big deal, right? You already know the outcome anyway. So you have to approach this with more maturity. And one of the qualities of maturity is that you realize outcomes are not as important as the process of things. Okay? Take any relationship. If it's a close relationship, because no two people's minds are the same, there will be conflict. It's built in. Someone here is a, a Kala? Yeah. Okay, you're signing up for a life of conflict. <laughs> now... That's the nature of having close relationships with people. Okay? So then the question is, what's the way in which that conflict is navigated? How do you go through conflict? Okay? And sometimes one of the kinds of conflicts that can occur is when you feel, and the word here feels important, you feel no positive feelings towards the other person whatsoever. No, that's sometimes conflict gets to that point. You feel no positive feelings. You know that deep, 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 deep down, in a way that you don't feel, that you don't want to quit this relationship, you don't want to get divorced, you don't want to stop being friends. You know that you have to make up. You know you're going to have to somehow get, like, like get back into a positive space. But right now, how do you feel? You feel like you have, no, you have none of that positive feeling, none of that goodwill. Is that an easy thing to go through 
that kind of an experience. You know, at the end of the day, I'm committed, you're committed, we're going to work this out. But right now, how do I feel? How was my experience of this? And if you know, now let's go, let's, go, let's go one step before that. You know certain things bring you and the person you're close to, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a parent, to that degree of conflict. You know, okay, you already know what's going to happen. There's going to be a conflict. There's going to be a sense of negativity that gets so deep you don't feel any positive feelings towards each other, but you both know that this relationship is important, so you end up working on it and you end up getting back to a positive place, right? But you know that that's what's about to happen. How do you feel? You're like, oh, great. I'm, I know the outcome, so I'm perfectly fine with this. No, because no, like, no one wants to go through that process. It's, it's, the, the, the trepidation is not because the outcome is unclear. Right. It's because you're experiencing the, the tenuousness of your connection. And you don't want to have to experience it, but you know you have to go through it. And, and it's, just, it's, that, it's really that. Based on, because it's only God saying I'll make it work, right? Versus if we both say we'll make it work. So God is coming to us and says, "Look, I know the end. I'm going to want to be king. I know the end. You're going to want to be my subjects. We both know that. That doesn't exempt us from going through this process. And how we go through that process will affect the specifics of the resolution. But even that is is not the main point. The main point is that the process itself it does something to us." And so when you think, of, oh, it's very tight, we have to convince God, and will there be a world that we want? You almost miss the whole thing. Being, almost everything that Chassidus talks about is talking about these kinds of more subtle ways we experience things. Let me give you a kind of concrete example. Chassidus speaks about um, doing mitzvahs a lot. And if you read the stuff very superficially, you think it's talking about doing mitzvahs. Um, but it's not really talking about doing mitzvahs. It's talking about doing mitzvahs. Are you doing the mitzvah? I put on tefillin every day, except Shabbos and holidays. But can I really say I, I put on tefillin every day? So it depends what I mean. Like, there's me. Am I, like... In the act, am I there? Am I invested? Is it something that's part of my day? Or is it just like, eh, right? Um, an expression that Chassidim often say is, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't pray today. Now, as a religious Jew, that's a big deal because like, there's three daily prayers, you gotta pray. It doesn't mean I didn't say the words. It doesn't mean I didn't even think of what they mean. But then I open myself up to God. Because if I didn't do that, then I didn't really pray. And it's talking about, it's not just, did the thing happen? But was it happening? Was it something that really occurred to you? Did it, did, is it an event within your relationship with God or just something that physically took place? And the more that we're sensitive and we relate to things in that way, the more these kinds of things, like we're talking about, about renewing Hashem's desire to be king and renewing our desire to be a subject, we realize that talking about it, about what's hanging the balance, is not so much because the outcome is the question. The outcome is almost a way of helping framing what's going on through the process. You know, a simple example of this is you put, a, you put a finish line on a racetrack so you have somewhere to run to, not because you actually want to be at the finish line. I, was, I never liked gym class, so we had to do, run, run the mile. And I asked the, the gym teacher, well, so what exactly is the, 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 the activity? She says, well, so you have to cross that line. 
Now, the adios, you're supposed to run around the yard until you cross the line. I said, okay. So I just went over the line and walked across. I'm done. <laughs> He's like, no, no. I said, but you said the goal was to cross the line. I crossed the line. <laughs> right? So, yeah, we have to understand that, that it's, it's the process, the experience. And in a certain sense, uh, this is going off a bit of a tangent, but if you think about it, what's the goal? Like, like a well-lived life, just on a human level. Leave out religion for a moment. What's the, what's the goal of a well-lived life? I'd say, yeah. In other words, that you went through so many, so many years, let's say, as the verse says, 70, 80 years, which is the normal lifespan for everything's working right. The goal is not to get to age 70 or 80. The goal is that you have 70 and 80 years worth of connections, of real experiences, of moments of integrity, moments of honesty, right? Now, we can disagree with the specifics of that. That's, yeah, and obviously, you know, from a religious point of view, God is supposed to be central in all of those experiences. And it's on that level. So, so when we're talking about renewing that relationship, the process of Rosh Hashanah is not, oh, yes, I know 100% that we're going to go to the shofar, God is going to be king, and the world's not going to fall out of existence. I know that's going to happen. It doesn't, that gives you confidence to go through the process. It doesn't make the process not terrifying. Right. Okay. Good? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, you referenced um, for the king, the further we are, the closer we are, the closer we are, the further we are. Right. The more... That concept, yeah. Something similar yeah. to that, right? Would that be... Because now we're talking about a different side of the relationship, would that be reversed then in that concept? Or would that concept only apply to the king... Yeah, that's a king relationship. Most relationship. other relationships don't okay. work that way, right? Okay. I was saying the other relationships, like friends, spouses, children, it, the, usually the closer we are, the closer we are. All right, okay. Right, right. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, so now, here's the thing. Rosh Hashanah is also a day of judgment. And um, there's a very straightforward way of understanding what that means. God looks at your merits and looks at your demerits and judges what you deserve, and all that is very true, and I'm not going to elaborate on it because that is not something that is discussed really at length in Hasidus. Um, because there's, a, there's something unpersonal, kind of remote and, 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 and about that aspect, and so Hasidus doesn't really focus so much on that. But Hasidus does speak about the notion of, of Hashem's judgment in other ways and ties it into this idea of Hashem being king. And one of the ways is that Hashem, when he is deciding whether he wants to be king, is he's judging us on how much we were his subjects the previous year. Okay. And this judgment is a this judgment is 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 judging a very specific characteristic. It's not judging how pious we were, how religiously observant we were, although it plays out in those things. He's judging how much we really wanted to be his subjects, how much be, my, my service of God was something that I wanted for myself. Okay? In other words, like this. If a person 
goes through the whole year and they're doing all the, the mitzvahs and all the commandments and they're avoiding sin and they're recognizing God's authority and they, but on some level, they wish God would find somebody else to pick on. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, this is my lot in life and I can accept it and I can embrace it. But on some level, it's like, I would have chosen something different for myself. Then, then God looks at that person and says, well, if you don't want it, why should I want it? That's, in other words, what he's judging us on how much we embrace his service from a place of our own ruts and our own desire, our own passion. And, and that's, again, it's not that he's looking and saying, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. And so Rosh Hashanah, the kind of, you know, if now we're shifting away from Hashem back to ourselves, think, okay, Rosh Hashanah is a, is a day of, 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 of returning to God and, 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 and I'm being judged. What is the thing that I should be getting in touch with? It's not the specifics of my observance, not my failings, not my struggles, not my challenges, but this one very, very simple question. Do I want this? If it was really up to me, do I want this or not? And I'm gonna give you an example um, where I think it's kind of easy to, to, to see this idea. Most Jews are born into it, whether they like it or not. But there are Jews who convert, right? Everyone knows that, okay. What does it mean to convert? Right. Now, you, you have to choose it. Yeah. Right. You have to choose it. Now, if you're going to choose it, one of the things that we have a rule in Judaism is that we don't, we don't allow conversions when there's when there's other factors that are pressuring the person to convert. There's degrees of this, I'm going to the complication. I'll just give you two examples. During the time of King Solomon's reign, there weren't supposed to be any conversions because as the, as the prophets describe, it says, in, it says in the books of prophets, that during King Solomon's reign, the, the, the splendor and grandeur of, of, of the Jewish kingdom was so amazing that everybody just would want to be part of it. And so there was this kind of like ulterior motive that's pressuring the person and they don't really want the covenant with God. They don't really want the service of God itself. Um, and the similar thing is that when Mashiach comes, there won't be conversion. Okay. Um, it's a complicated area of lacha. I'm not going, it's not a practical lacha class. So that means like a real convert is, is someone's like, yeah, I don't have to have this life. I want this life. Now, I don't mean to say in real life every convert actually goes through that. Everybody in real life is a very individual. But this is one of the reasons, just one second, this is one of the reasons why um, the Maimonides, um, in his famous letter to a convert named Ovadia, um, and Ovadia wasn't sure whether, he, you know, what is his standing before God? It was in the Middle Ages. A lot of the rabbinic writings were not as well known. And what is his standing before God? Is he really, is he really able to stand in front of God and say the Shemun or say, you know, the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm not, I'm not part of this people, I'm like, and uh, the Rambam writes that what does it mean that God is the God of Avram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What does that mean? It means that they chose to devote their life to God. So, so he says, if you chose to devote your life to God, 
in the same path, in the same manner, then you're in a certain sense more their child than someone who's just born into it and, and accepts their lot in life. And so there's this dynamic is that Hashem is saying, is Rosh Hashanah saying, look, on some level, you have to want it because you want it. Not because this is just the way things are. That if, you know, on some level, on Rosh Hashanah, it's about before I ask Hashem to be king, I have to like come to a place in myself where if it was up to me, I would choose the life of his service. I would choose the life where he's my king. Because of that, and that's what he's judging me on. That sincerity. And if I get caught up in how pious I am, how much mitzvahs I kept, you know, my character flaws, I'm skirting the issue. There's place for that. There's an importance to that. And the time for that is not Rosh Hashanah, which is why you'll notice if you look through Rosh Hashanah prayers, we don't confess our sins on Rosh Hashanah. We don't talk about our failings on Rosh Hashanah. We don't address the issues we have in living up to God's expectations because it's about that core issue. Like the whole notion of working on myself and my problems and my issues and that's, a, that's more in Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur we talk a lot about our sins. Rosh Hashanah is about, do I want this? And it's a very simple thing. God wants us to say I want it from a place of sincerity. And so on, on a very, very practical level, if a person wants to take all this idea, I want to you know, crown the thing that he wants it, to be honest, and now I'm going to make one more practical thing and then let you ask the question. Sometimes, it's, often it is better to be honest. And sometimes being honest means being honest that I'm not where, I'm hold, where I should be holding. God is judging me on whether I really want to serve him. I really want to serve him. And if I think about it, I'm sitting there in Shul and Rosh Hashanah, you know what I might discover? I don't really want it that much. So now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I'm supposed to lie? I'm supposed to like, like create a, tell myself in my head? And then like, like I can lie to another person because I can't tell what's going on inside of me. God knows what's going on inside of me. I'm not gonna, like, what am I supposed to do at that point? So Hasidus has this idea, there's something called a desire for a desire. Most of us, honestly, are probably gonna not get to a place on Rosh Hashanah, at least certainly not every year, maybe once in one Rosh Hashanah lifetime, where we feel the desire, we would choose this life of service. That's really what we want. That's the life we would want. Regardless of the cost, that that's the, most of us are probably not going to feel that. But so we can do something slightly different, which is, do we want to be able to get to that place? And we can at least you know approach God from that place, and that's sincere, right? So on Rosh Hashanah, and I told you I'm going to try and give at least one practical recommendation to get to a place where you can sincerely, to yourself and to God, say. I wish I could, I want to be able to want to serve, to, to want this relationship of service of you to the degree that you want me to have it. But I don't know how to get to that place. And that's genuine. Great, great righteous people, people who their souls burst forth for all sorts of reasons, they get to that place and actually experience it. Most Jews don't. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why we have the chauffeur, is the idea is that the chauffeur is that that expression
expressing that desire that we cannot always get in touch with in ourselves. Like the, on some level, I want this, but I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how to get to that place in myself. And the calling out of the chauffeur is supposed to kind of represent to God that I do want it, but I don't. But I don't feel that want. I wish I felt that want. I wish I felt that desire. Um, because the worst thing you can do on Rosh Hashanah is not be honest. The worst thing you do on Rosh Hashanah is sit and create a story in your head that you don't really believe about yourself. But that's what we say, like all the prayers. We're lying? No. It's to get yourself to a place where, you, where, where you're not lying. And sometimes the, what, you're, the, what you can be saying is, these are things... You can say I can say the prayers and I can say, these are things I wish I sincerely felt, but I don't. And that's a genuine prayer. Yeah, remember that thing I said about the Chassidus expects a certain degree of maturity and how it's, yeah, the person... The, the, the second Chabad Rebbe wrote a whole treatise on how to approach Chassidus properly and he says, and then he goes through some the errors that people make and he says, the first and most important thing is a strong decision not to fool oneself and not to, not to lie to oneself. Because if we're willing to do that, then nothing, you know, nothing authentic can ever happen. Okay, you've been waiting very patiently. Thank oh, you. it was just a small question about... Sorry for making you wait. Yeah. No, don't worry. Uh, it was just a small question because you said about that there were no conversions at the time of Solomon. There weren't supposed to be. Oh, because it was like his wife's. Right, that's actually why, that's actually why um, the, the, the prophets record his wives as being Gentile women. Yeah. Because he converted them when he wasn't supposed to. Oh, okay. So he went against the... Right. He went against the rabbinic court. So he had political kosher conversions or... So there's a principle in Jewish law, which is called the bidyevit or, or after the fact, which is some things you're not allowed to do, but if you did it after the fact, it is valid. So the rule was he wasn't allowed to convert them. That didn't make the conversions retroactively invalid. Isn't he the law? What? He's the law when it comes to things um, other than the hal- where the halacha is um, ambivalent about. But if there's halacha, then he doesn't, he doesn't, have, a, he doesn't have authority over halacha. And um, yeah, so he, 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 he made a political calculation that it was a good idea to make you know, alliances through marriage. And um, that, would be, that was what the Jewish people needed. And um, the rabbi's like, but you can't convert people and you can't marry women who aren't converted. And he went ahead and did it anyway. And so the prophets recorded as if his wives were Gentiles. Um, and um, so, yeah. But that, that's why I phrased it specifically that way. Um, Is not desiring. Basically, what if I don't desire it, but I now that it's there, I don't desire that it's not there. Is it better than if I desire for God not to be our king? Like, is that like a level? Yeah, yeah, that is a level. I'll even say one other thing, which is very important. Um, This is, I think, uh, just this. This actually is 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 an idea that I think relates more to Yom Kippur. Um, but is an important idea in life in general. We give way too much credibility to our own self-knowledge. If I were to ask you, if you were to go back and interview your 12-year-old self, would they be able to predict the kind of person you are now? 
in, 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 a, in a kind of like the, the deeper kind of more subtle intimate kind of stuff. Okay. Now, do you think you could really have a sense of who you're going to be when you're 40? No. So the raw material of who we are is never really fully known to us. And one second. And so one of the things that Chassidah says is, but God does know. And so when God says things about our soul and says things that deep down we want this, and then he does know those things. And so, so there's a sense of like sometimes trusting that God knows things about us that we don't know. And that goes back to saying, I can say the word sincerely, not because I feel it, and not even necessarily because I, I want to feel it, but I know the fact that I don't want to feel it is because I'm not in touch with myself. And that's sincere and genuine. Right? The main thing is, 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 is to not, right? so the, the more a person can kind of have humility, and this is, this is really key to Yom Kippur about the idea of like tshuva and a clean start within yourself and being able to face your flaws, but, but it's in general to think that, that, that ability to, to, to have the humility that I am not like the, 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 the expert on myself, which is a very hard thing to, to, to acknowledge. Because we all do feel like we are the ones who, are, who, are, who really know ourselves better than anyone, but we really don't know ourselves that well. We constantly surprise ourselves, and God really does know us. So that, that's something that can be added into this reflection. Yeah. Um, it just brought me back to Tehillim 37, where it said, um, So shall you delight in the Lord, and he will give you what your heart's desires. And so it's interesting because I believe in the Parsha last week in Kitzavo, right? It was in, I think, 2847, where he said, Serve Hashem. Because you did not serve Hashem with all your heart and have gladness in your heart um, is why I kept these things from you. And it, it seems like all that Hashem is asking is just to enjoy yourself with me and then I will give you your heart's desires. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, the, the, it's true and it's one of those things that when you say it in one sentence it sounds beautiful and very easy and then you think about <laughs> what that actually looks like in life and you realize right, exactly. oh yeah, yeah, that, that requires a lot of humility it requires a lot of discipline right. it requires a lot of honesty it requires it requires vulnerability it right. requires yeah and then okay yes but so yeah. it sounds easy but right. it, it means yeah, yeah. Yes. so so we're talking about crowning Hashem King you know it, it's not about manipulating him into wanting anything. That's the point. The judgment is not he's saying, okay, push the right button, do the right things, and we'll get him to want, want to be our king. It's a, even that is part of the dynamic relationship. Him wanting to be our king is, is in, in dialogue, is in a dance with our desire to be his subject. And so we have to, that's the thing we need to really be focusing on and trying to relate to that and get in a way that's, that, that is honest, whatever the honesty is about that. Um, and then when we're saying at least some of the prayers, right, we actually, those are, those are real prayers. And then the chauffeur is really saying that is, in a certain sense, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about the chauffeur that Chassidus points out. The chauffeur has no words, right? It's, you can't actually, you know, just make raw sounds. Because the idea is that the deepest parts of ourselves can't be articulated in words. And so this notion that we want, to, we want to have this relationship where we can serve him, that he values our service, and we can have that way of interacting even though he is God and we're mortal people, 
on some level, no matter how honest you are with yourself, and even if you're the greatest tzaddik and the most righteous and spiritually sensitive person, you'll never be able to get in touch with how much that matters to us deep, deep down at the core of our soul. And so in a certain sense, the chauffeur is both, both the person who can't even seem to muster even the slightest amount of sincerity. It's giving expression to that, that deep part of their soul. And the person who is, so to speak, in touch with things in the most profound way, also is not really touching the core. There's a way in which the core place from which we desire this, this connection to Hashem is almost beyond our ability to discover within ourselves, And so Hashem kind of gives us this ritual to give it expression, to give it manifestation, rather than making it dependent on self-discovery, because there's a degree to which it's beyond our ability to discover. It's a beyond our ability to really genuinely feel, because our ability to feel is limited, and this desire, the root of our soul, is infinite. Yes, you're created. No, no, you're created. That would, to be created means to have limited ability. One of the things that Hasidus um, elaborates on based on Jewish philosophy is that a defining characteristic of being created is that parameters were placed upon you. Because God is unlimited and anything that is an extension of God's being is, has an unlimitedness to it. But when God creates, that means he puts parameters on things. Right. And those parameters inhibit and confine. It goes back to what we are saying about our personality, our psychology, our being a human being is not the soul because it has limits. There's only so much I can feel and only so much I can understand. And even though I'm the greatest sage and the greatest holy person, it, it's still, those things are going to be limited. The soul underneath that that's trying to come through that is unlimited. And so in a certain sense, the chauffeur is saying as much as we're trying to sincerely mean it and sincerely mean it, the real, the real drive that we want this, we want, to be, we want to feel fulfilled knowing that we're doing something that matters to him and he, he is invested in our service of him. The real drive of that is something we can never fully fa- experience. But we could be more intense than the soul. That's right. That is true. That is true. But only Which is why the chassid discourses that speak about this after elaborating all the points I've said, and especially if you have sin covering over your soul, it makes it all more difficult. But... Notice that that's like a detail. Right. It's not the core issue. Uh, right. Okay. Um, which is why I didn't dwell on it. Okay. Um, it, it, this is kind of, the, this is kind of how Hasidus looks at Rosh Hashanah. It's, it's very deep. It's very raw. It's, it's, it's scary, but it's also in a certain sense, there's a, there has to be a lot of confidence and trust to go through it. Um, and the most important thing is, is to take that kind of thing and relate to it in a way that's honest and sincere. Okay? And so that practice I say is, and the Rosh Hashanah davening is very long, by the way. So I would say, do not make an expectation that, oh, I'm going to go through this whole process. Make some time reasonable throughout, you know, where these ideas you, you try to have some kind of honesty with and if you can connect it to the words in the prayer book, great. If, if you can't, that's also fine. Um, the ideal time is when the chauffeur is being sounded. When the chauffeur is being sounded, you know, think about this in a way that's sincere and honest. Um, and then, you know, enjoy the good food. Because <laughs> uh, it actually says in halacha, and this quote in Chassidus, that a Jew, who, a Jew needs to, to make a festive meal in Rosh Hashanah because he has to have the confidence that it's all going to work out. Right? At the end of the day, deep, deep down, 
right? God is committed to us, we're committed to God, and we're gonna find a way of renewing this devotion to each other. So there has to be that confidence. That's so we have festive meals. Okay. Good? Okay. There's so much more on Shana, we're done. Next class, we're going to do the 10 days of Tshuva, which is the interim period from Rosh Hashanah. Actually, includes Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Okay? Um, and we're going to be talking not so much about Tshuva in general, but specifically what is different about Tshuva during this unique 10-day period as opposed to just kind of regularly Tshuva. Okay, so... It's not a class on tshuva, it's a class on those specific 10 days and what they afford in our relationship with Hashem. And then we're going to have Yom Kippur after that. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. Thank you. Good? Thank you. All right. Yeah. I didn't explain that. I, 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 no, no, no. There's, so th- this touches on one of the more difficult subjects in Hasidus, which is how Hashem being king is on the one hand a very unnatural thing, and on the other hand is rooted in the essence of his being. And there's a kind of paradoxical nature to kingship. Um, I didn't explain it. Um, if you want, I'll give you I'll give you a, an explanation right now. But it, two things: what I'm not going to actually explain, I'll use something else, which is a parallel, which is a little bit easier to explain, and not going to tell you how that correlates. You have to like figure that out on your own. Okay. So, um. Chazidus points out a similar dynamic exists with speaking, which is actually why Kabbalistically speaking and kingship are, are kind of considered related to each other. Right, machos. So when speaking is, is a weird thing because speaking involves um, using words which really are not... The, you don't need them. You don't need words. Words are a way of communicating to someone else. And the actual words that you're using um, really have no real connection to what you're trying to communicate. They're just arbitrary collections of sounds, right? Which is different, by the way, than other forms of communication. Dance, crying, laughter. There's a kind of intrinsic quality. Um, In other words, animals can communicate in ways that people can also communicate. But when you start using language, you have this thing that, like, there is no connection between the, the, the phonemes that I'm making and the content that I'm trying to communicate with you right now. It's completely arbitrary. And it's actually quite an interesting thing how that works. So what you do is, looks at this, you generate this thing which is completely superficial, completely arbitrary, has really nothing to do with who you are, what you care about. And... Therefore, it's the most removed thing from you, which is why you can say words without meaning them. You can say words without even knowing what what they mean, right? You can just repeat words in another language because they're really not part of the human experience at all. They're this superficial thing that you just generate. Why do you generate it? In order that what you know and what you feel should somehow reach somebody else. 
So if you think about it, it's very superficial, but if you think about it another way, it's actually extremely profound. It means you have the ability to escape the limits of yourself, to escape the own prison of, your, of, 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 the, of what makes my lived experience different than yours. So you end up with this thing that I can transcend myself when I speak to other people, and that goes to the very core of, 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 of the soul. And at the same time, the actual words that I'm saying they're very, very superficial, which is why like, you can just say things in other words. And so you start thinking about that paradox a little bit. That's something that is so, so much a, 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 so remote and so unrepresentative of who you really are actually is a manifestation of something deeper than any other part of you. There's a, then Hasidus takes that and says, that's also true of kingship. And that becomes extremely, extremely difficult to understand. It requires a lot of metaphysics and a lot of deep understanding of um, how Hasidus looks at what the nature of, of being is and what the nature is to be a person. And um, I, I, I didn't even want to go there. But you are right to notice that I did say something paradoxical, right? That this is very deep connection, but the whole thing is predicated on God doing something unnatural. Existence, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a story I wanted to tell. Say, it's a very short story. There was a chassid. It slipped my mind to say it. So if you're still here, you all can hear the story. Um, there's a there was a chassid who lived in America. I forgot where he lived. He was a rabbi of a of, of a of a of a shul. This was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There wasn't really any Orthodox Judaism really established. So all the people in his shul, they all came from, they're all, Ameri- they're all Jews who'd come from the old country and they mostly weren't religious, but they weren't like officially non-Orthodox. So they worked on Shabbos, didn't necessarily keep kosher, but like the shul was run according to halacha. And he was like a very, very profound chassid. And in Rosh Hashanah by Rosh Hashanah night, where again, that's when Hashem no longer desires to be king. Um, he was thinking about these ideas. And he was a very deep person, and he was moved to tears. And he was the the, the chazan was doing the, the 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 prayers, and the community's praying, and they're doing the melodies, and everyone finishes, and he's still singing. He hasn't even begun praying, and he's lost in thought, and just tears are streaming down his face. And the president of the shul goes over to some of the board members, and they consult, and uh, they figure that he must not be making enough money because you know Russia, and he's concerned about I don't know maybe his, his house or whatever so the, the president of the show goes over to put his hand on him and says we can raise your salary it's okay <laughs> <laughs> some like people can be in two totally different places yeah, right, right. so not some people get, get to that place okay fine it's, it's, an, it's an important story to like just put things in perspective alright mm-hmm. I'll see you tomorrow for Thank questions you. and answers Thank you.